Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this week's episode of Cultivating Her Space. There are no gurus in this industry, and knowing that, you have to be reading up on what's happening in the news. You have to be learning about the different things that are going on in the technology so that you can invest in things, build things, learn new skills. Hey, maybe you can become a, a programmer, develop an awareness of this technology so that when 10 to 20 years rolls along and the Amazons of Web3 are apparent, you've benefited from that inevitable surge rather than saying, I wish I would have. Today's episode is sure to provide you with motivation, inspiration, or a fresh perspective. If you have any aha moments or appreciate anything from this episode, please leave us a review to let us know we're on the right track. Also, we release episodes every Friday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit cultivatingherspace.com to access our exclusive after show and other bonus content from the Patreon tab. Welcome to Cultivating Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're your, your hosts, hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey lady, it's Terry here from the Cultivating Her Space podcast. I'm hosting a free podcasting masterclass where I'm going to teach you how to create your impactful podcast and how you can generate multiple streams of income. You can visit podcastwithterry.com to register for free. I hope to see you there. All right, lady. Today we have a very special guest. Okay. He's brilliant. So take out your pen, your paper, or your note taking device and be ready to take notes, re listen to this episode, and then add his podcast, The New Wave Entrepreneur, to your playlist. Okay. Daniel DiPiazza is a best selling author and serial entrepreneur. He's a source of energy, insight, and strength for brave millennial leaders looking to level up in their business and life. In other words, he out here living his best life and his job is awesome. And there's so much more that we could say about him, but we're just going to dive into this conversation. Daniel, the water is warm and the tide is rising. Welcome to Cultivating Her Space Podcast. Oh, you snagged my tagline and you pronounced my name correctly in the first couple minutes. A plus. We be doing our research, Daniel. Yes. We're so glad to have you here. Lived my whole life with poor pronunciation and poor recall. Oh. So thank you. It really means a lot. <laughs> All right, Daniel. We are going to get started with the quote of the day. And it should sound really familiar because these are your words. We've been stalking your Instagram. So our quote of the day, take advantage of the changing guard to even the playing field and collect your coins. 
This is most likely the biggest opportunity of our lifetime for you to start from absolute zero and create generational wealth through sheer self-education and timing. That's true. I, you know, Daniel, when I was doing my stalking of your social media and learning more about you and trying to find that that perfect quote, when I came across this, and this is part of a bigger statement that you made, but when I came across this quote, I felt that this was perfect for our conversation today. And so I want to check in with you. When you put this quote out there, what was your intention? What was your hope for those who were seeing it? Great question. Great quote to pull. I think it's quite encompassing of my general philosophy towards this. Simply, we're rebuilding the stock market. You know, one of the illustrations that I use as an example is the story of Amazon. And I'm not going to go into the fact that I really kind of abhor Jeff Bezos. I think he's a horrible person, but that's just a separate conversation. There's a real life Lex Luthor, it's Jeff, it's Jeff Bezos, but that's a different conversation. When you look at just the stock of Amazon, you know, when they IPO, which is initial public offering, they offer themselves to the stock market in 97, they're valued at $18 a share. Their stock split three times in the past 25 years, which means that they created more shares. And since then, their stock price is now worth $3,500. So that $1,800, if you had invested a thousand or that, that $18 per share, if you'd invested a thousand dollars in Amazon in 97 when they IPO'd, you're worth 1.2 million today. We're doing nothing. We're doing nothing. And those numbers can boggle the mind. You know, I remember in high school when my, uh, my high school math teacher tried to explain to us compound interest and how it was one of the most magical things, you know, known to man. And you look at what's happening now in the, the market of cryptocurrency, you know, under the umbrella of Web3, which is where the internet is moving, it's the evolution of the internet. And we see now that they're reinventing uh, the stock market. The stock market is basically just a collection of companies that you can invest your money into. And as long as they do better, you do better. Well, with cryptocurrency, now we have new technologies, but these technologies are essentially, they're, they're companies rebranded. You know, even Bitcoin, although it doesn't have a CEO, is a company of sorts because you can invest in it and get a return based on how well these currencies do. And they're making many of these. And because money is changing, because the dollar is devaluing, because other currencies are eventually going to take its place, which is something we can talk about, because of all the tectonic plates of the world that are shifting and moving, we have the opportunity now to invest in this technology that isn't just going to be a choice for us, but it's going to be an eventuality. And if we know the technology is going this way, it's incumbent upon us to actually to, to not sit on the sidelines and just act as mere consumers of whatever we're fed in the future by Mark Zuckerberg and all his friends. We have to look at this and say, listen, first of all, we're still early. You know, if you look at just the, I know I'm just diving right into this, but if you, if you look at the, the adoption curve of cryptocurrency, and we can back it up if you want more explanation on this, but if you look at the adoption curve, we know that just based on the number of crypto wallets that exist in the world, and you can do a brief scan on this on different services, that there are as many crypto users now as there were internet users in 1997, but we're growing at double the rate. The internet usage rate was growing at 63% per year from 1997 on, and it's growing at 113% per year now. So 
Web3, which is the internet of money, is growing at double the speed that the first internet did. So all that to say, that, and honestly, I think it should be going faster, <laughs> you know, and, and it certainly will as things progress. But all that to say that as technology changes, we have to take an active role and be in the driver's seat. One of the things that's important to do now is rather than just be a consumer, be a creator. To be a creator means to actively take part in the industry. And to actively take part in the industry, you have to educate yourself. There are no gurus in this industry. And knowing that, you have to be reading up on what's happening in the news. You have to be learning about the different things that are going on in the technology so that you can invest in things, build things, learn new skills. Hey, maybe you can become a, a programmer, develop an awareness of this technology so that when 10 to 20 years rolls along and the Amazons of Web3 are apparent, you've benefited from that inevitable surge rather than saying, I wish I would have. That is so powerful. <laughs> that deep breath. That's so powerful. Okay, Daniel, you dove in already, but can you just talk a little bit about your origin story for folks that are like, well, who is this guy, Daniel DiPiazza? Some folks I'm sure are familiar with you, but you often say there are no gurus, right? You're just an interested consumer. What is your yes. backstory before we kind of lay the foundation for some of these terms and dive sure. a bit deeper? So I'll give you my backstory in the context of the internet, because we're talking about the evolution of the internet. So let's just talk about why we're saying Web3 and what that is. Because I, I think even like if I was talking to my mom or my family members who are not, we, I, I tend to feel like sometimes all of this stuff is obvious because I live in a bubble. I exist in a bubble. But we want to be inclusive in the bubble and, and, and define some of these things so people can like jump in and stick their teeth into it. So what's the difference between Web1, 2, and 3? How am I related to that? Web1, beginning of the internet. I'll play a sound familiar for you. You know, we all remember that. There was a time I when you couldn't it. be on the phone. <laughs> remember that? You yes. missed that? And AOL I don't used miss to it, send though. you. No, I don't miss it. Well, kind of though, because if that was the speed of the internet, that the speed of life was slower. It's true. You, know, you weren't always connected. You're right. Point, you know, right. this is a gift and a curse. The cell phone I'm holding yes. up, it's more of a gift. But yes. that being said, Web One, when, when AOL, American Online, used to send you discs in the mail for your updates. Remember that? They used to send you discs in the mail? Yes. Now, now, guys, I will note here, do you know that there are still like over 40 million people in the U.S. that are still on dial-up and they're all in the middle of the country? You know? Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, there are still people buying Redbox. Okay? Right. That's a good buying point. Buying Redbox DVDs. Yeah, they do. You know? They do. Yes. So, DVD? So. What is a DVD? Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, some people never actually change mediums. You know, some people are still stuck on CDs. Some people are still playing tapes. Seriously. But that's beside the point. Web One came along. And Chris Dixon, who's one of the, the venture capitalists at Andreessen Horowitz, which is a big venture capitalist firm, had a great description of it. He said that Web One was read only. So it's like you have your restaurants and your restaurants put a menu online, read only. And I remember my grandfather used to say, well, why do I need the internet? I have the newspaper. And I was like, well, it, it's different than the newspaper. You can, you know, there's more interaction with it and they can update things instantly. And it's very, very fast. You have to wait for the newspaper to print. And he's like, ah, I don't need that. And, and so you had to like, first you had to convince people why we would need something that was digital rather than, than analog. And eventually people started to see that, that digital, there were real benefits to it. And then it started to become monetized. You know, and this is Web 1.0, the, the mid-90s through the early 2000s. Then the early 2000s came along. And what happened? We had the evolution of Web 2.0. And that's really when the internet met mobile technology. You know, and that's when, I mean, the first, the first iPhone came out in what, I think 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. And really then internet speed started to pick up. And when, when mobile technology met 
with internet technology. When the mobile phone met with the internet, we had the birth of social media, really, when that started to explode. I mean, Facebook came out in 2005, but really it started to take off in when the phone became something that was ubiquitous to us. And so that really kicked off Web 2.0. And truth be told, we're still at the tail end of Web 2.0. We're in Web 2.8 right now, something like that. And so Web 2, whereas Web 1 is read only, Web 2 is read and write. So you can read and you can also interact with the web. And that's when Twitter came along, Facebook, and we could actually edit our online experience more easily. We had profiles and walls to write on and things to do. It wasn't just looking at movie times. It was like responding to your friends. And, you know, there was more of a community feeling. Now, Web 3 is what they say is read, write, own. So up until this point, most of the, the interaction that we do on the Internet, we are the product. And what I tell people is if you're not paying for it, you are the product. So Google, Facebook, you know, Amazon, you're paying for it, but the service itself is free. All these things that we're accessing and felt like such a, I mean, I, I remember when, when all these products came into being Gmail and, and, you know, and Facebook, I thought, wow, how can they do this for free? Like, it seems impossible. I, I don't have to pay for this. And as we've come to learn now later, you are the product that's being fed into the machine. Web3 is going to give us a lot of ownership back, not only over our data, but the ability to actually benefit from the things that we are using online without going off on too much of a tangent, there, is, there are many ecosystems now which are based on Web3 where when you, pay the ad, when you watch the ads, you actually get paid to watch them rather than your data being fed and you getting nothing from it. You know, which think about how many millions of hours of advertisements you've watched without your consent really and that data was monetized. Well, now on browsers like the Brave browser, you can watch ads by choice and get paid in a token and that token can be exchanged for real money. So anyway, that's Web 1, 2, and 3. I came in to the internet in Web 1 as a kid in elementary school. The millennials, I'm 33 now, the millennials are the last generation to understand the true difference between analog and digital. You know, I existed during computers, but not during internet. The internet was here. I started to play around with it. And over my, over my career as a student, I got more comfortable with it. And around 2008, I started to blog. And I got really, really fascinated with the idea of sharing ideas online and writing online. And between 2008 and 2015, I slowly grew my audience, but without thinking, I'm going to grow an audience. I was truly just writing to write. And many of the things I was doing at that time were based in just understanding how I could how I could basically take advantage of the, the trend that was already going upwards. And so one of the things that I really got good at was freelancing, freelancing online. And during this transition of about, you know, five to 10 years, there were various sites like, you know, one is called Upwork. Back in the day, it was called Elance and these different sites where you could list your services and people would pay you to perform little, little jobs. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And I got to the point where I figured out how to kind of game the system. I thought, you know, if I, could if I could look for what jobs are in demand, I could figure out a price point where I could sell that service and then pay someone else to also do that work and I could project manage. So I started to project manage design jobs, development jobs, and I learned about development. I learned about web design. I learned about coding. I learned about some, some basic, basic internet skills. And then I started to write about my experiences monetizing skill sets online. And as I started to monetize those skill sets, 
what was very fascinating was that people were interested in my in my process around it and so it became actually more profitable for me to teach the stuff than for me to do the stuff so i graduated from performing the services to teaching at a bigger level and then i started to build uh, audiences i started to do online courses and then i used that platform to then start other businesses because there's then especially in the 2010s there started to be another level of society which created some sort of like social capital around internet identity you know influencer became a thing this wasn't a thing when we started off it wasn't a thing so i i un- unwittingly gained this level of uh, authority i guess and, and then that allowed me to go into more legitimate business situations and say well look what i've done here don't you trust me and then i started to to i you know i built a couple other companies uh, i sold one to la weekly i did, a, did some e-commerce so i started to just gradually claw myself up but it was all just started from blogging so i went through web one and two and now I'm looking at Web3 and saying, okay, this is where we're going. How do I attach myself to where the tide is already flowing? And that's the new wave. Yes. Take a breath. Take a breath. Yes. <laughs> Daniel, yes, you were on a roll. That was beautiful. That was a lot of information and a very, very interesting story that I think a lot of folks can relate to in terms of how their life has shifted because of the shifts in technology, right? Mm -hmm. But what I want to talk about is Web 3.0 and banking and how Web 3.0 is going to reshape our banking system. So I want to get your insight and your thoughts on that because you've already demonstrated that you are in it and you know how to ride the waves and so tell us what do we need I? to be looking I for. Hope so. yes, I hope so. You you've demonstrated that already just by as you told us <sighs> in your origin story. You have greatly demonstrated that you know how to but move. It looks that clean looking backwards though. And you're in it, you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Well that's, that's it's good easier point. to check the dots looking backwards. That's a very good point. Yeah. I appreciate that perspective. Yes. Steve Jobs said that though. You know, he said it's always easy to connect the dots looking backwards. It's true. Hindsight 2020. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'll just ask you a simple question. Who do you guys bank with? Who do we have? First Republic is one. Yeah. Yeah. It's like our our business. For our business. And I have like a credit union. Yeah. Old school credit union. Credit unions are not bad. Do you trust your banks? I mean, you know, technically I have to because that's where my money is. But I mean, if I really want to go old school like our grandparents and keep money at the keep our money at the house and under the mattress and in boxes in the closet, like, yeah, because they didn't trust the banking system. Technically, I feel like that's what I should be doing, but I don't. You told a story online about a really shitty experience you had (sighs) with your bank. Can you share that with everyone? Because that, okay. that's pretty devastating. <laughs> so, I'll, okay. So I'll share a couple perspectives. First of all, let's just briefly touch on the Federal Reserve and central banking about what's actually happening there. You know that the bank doesn't have your money in there, right? You, you know that the way that they create more money with the, the central banking system is that they basically take your money and they loan it out to other people. And with the way that the Federal Reserve is set up, for every $1 that they take in, they can loan out $10 that they create from thin air. They're just making these rules up, by the way. This isn't, there's no real physics to it. So they loan out $10 for every $1 that they take in. And then they wonder why everything is completely overinflated. Because if we look at 
in 2008 when this crash was happening. And basically what happened was these banks were, were going belly up because people who couldn't afford their mortgage because we're not going to... Subprime, th- subprime means that there were different people, people they, were, they were loaning out mortgages to people who technically shouldn't have gotten the mortgages. They couldn't really afford the houses. The people, and then they did this all over the place. Those are subprime. People couldn't afford to put, pay back their mortgages. And so then the banks had all this money loaned out that wasn't coming back in. So they had all this money on the books that were they were technically supposed to be getting, but in reality, they weren't getting that money back in. So there was a crisis. Now, what happened when that crisis went down? Did the government say to the people, people, I see you are all having trouble paying your mortgage. We're going to send that payment for you. No, they didn't bail out the people. They bailed out the banks. I want you to think about that. And that was Obama too. Okay. So they didn't bail out the people. They bailed out the banks. So we have to first understand that there really is no security in our money being held by organizations that aren't actually, they don't actually physically have it. As soon as it's loaned, as soon as it's given to them, as soon as you deposit it, they're loaning it out. So it's not there. Two, if you were to go get your money and everyone went to get their money at the same time, there wouldn't be enough money to actually withdraw it. Now, if a private person does this, it's called a Ponzi scheme. When the government does it, it's called Federal Reserve Banking. You know, think about it. When a, when a Bernie Madoff, who is a famous Ponzi schemer for 20 years, creates fake investments and creates money on reports that he doesn't actually have. And then people try to cash in and he can't pay out. That's a Ponzi scheme. He goes to jail. He died in jail. Okay. But when the government does it, it's okay. So again, double standard, quite the double standard. So that's the the second thing. They don't actually have your money. They couldn't actually support it if everyone needed to get their money. And it's not even in the bank. The third thing is the interest rates that you're getting on your money is basically zero and inflation is much higher than the interest rate. Okay. So please guys understand this. I want you to please get this into your mind because no one really, I, I think it's very hard to wrap your mind around this. First of all, putting it in the match under the mattress is just about as good as keeping it in the bank in terms of what the money, the value of the money is worth. The average savings account is getting 0.15% interest rate. Okay. Inflation, the Fed is reporting that inflation is 6%, but we think it's actually much higher than that. So you're actually losing 5.8% of your dollar every year if it's just sitting there. Okay. And on the whole, we're going to get back to why DeFi and why. On the whole, the dollar feels safe because generally speaking, day to day, your loaf of bread costs the same today as it does tomorrow, $4, $5. And it doesn't really seem that unstable. But if you look at the scope of history, the scope of time, since 1971, do you know what happened in 1971? No, I feel like I should no, but though, I... but go ahead and tell us. <laughs> Nixon took, took us off the gold standard, okay? Uh... The gold standard means that a dollar was pegged to a certain amount of gold. Now that's necessarily limiting because gold's scarce. We had gold in our reserve and every dollar was redeemable for a certain amount of gold. Now, as a brief, I'm like, I'm going so, I'm like going down rabbit hole, but I will come back. As a brief historical aside, the reason why America has been so powerful for the past 50, 60, 70 years is because during World War II, really starting in World War I, but especially after World War II, Europe was getting destroyed. That whole area got fucked up. Okay. Whether you were in ally forces or whether you were the opposition, the ops got messed up over there. Japan got destroyed, Germany, UK, France, that whole area got mashed up. America was pretty much completely undisturbed, except for Hawaii, 
RIP Pearl Harbor. Thank you. We know it was a tragedy. Yes, but we were pretty much undisturbed. And during that time, Europe sent almost all of its gold over to the American vaults so that we could protect it during that time. And because we were holding on to all the world's gold, at the end of the war, there was a new world order. We were the wealthiest country. We were by far the stablest country because we hadn't been destroyed by the war. So what that meant was that we became the global reserve currency, which means that everything that was transacted in the world was pegged to the dollar. Loans were created in dollars. Global trade was denominated in dollars. Before that, it used to be the British pound. It used to be pound sterling. So everything used to be done in pounds. Before that, it was the Dutch kroner. Okay? So the dollar became the Federal Reserve or the global reserve currency. Everyone wanted dollars. Now, the upside in dollars or the upside in, in being the country with the, with the global reserve currency, my friends, is that you can print money as much as you want. You have the global money printing machine and everyone wants what you've got. Okay. And we went nuts. There was a slight recession after World War II when soldiers were coming home and looking to get jobs. But then about 1950, we took off. This is when my grandfather was coming home from World War II. He was able to get a job as an attorney when you could get a middle-class job and be set. He had a family with six kids. And that whole period from 1950 through 1970 was the golden age of American politics and society. And even though there was still racial inequality and other types of inequality, on the general, on the general speaking, the quality of life in America was the best in the world. And as with, now this is the downside of having the global reserve currency. When you have the global reserve currency, inevitably, and it's been shown time after time after time, you get greedy and you overreach because we printed trillions and trillions of dollars. We had a blank check. I mean, if you had a money printer, wouldn't she kind of do the same thing? You got a money, you literally have a money printer for the whole world. <laughs> and everyone wants your dollar. So we went crazy. We overprinted. And by 71, Nixon was like, well, we can't keep pegging this to gold because we don't actually have enough gold in our reserves to back up how much money we're printing. So we're going to have to disconnect gold from money, right? Because we don't actually have enough gold to back this up anymore. So basically, he made, he made money not, no longer redeemable for gold. And when that happens, you can print even more money. It's literally taking the ceiling off of how much can be printed. And every single year since then, we've been printing, 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 printing. And the value of the dollar has gone down, meaning that what $1 purchased in 1971, so what cost a dollar in 1971, now costs $6.38. So that's why, you know, your grandma is always like, when I was a kid, this was 50 cents, you know, because that's actually happening. But on the day to day, you don't see it because it's a very slow creep. Now, that is the context for where the American dollar is. And your money in the bank is invested in the system that's completely incumbent and tied to the American dollar. Not to mention the fact that it's supposed to be FDIC insured for up to $200,000 or something like that. But let's face it, guys, the government can't even pay its own bills. I'm not very confident it can pay your bills. If you look at the global debt, we're $28 trillion in debt and we only make $22 trillion. So do the math. We're actually underwater. I think it's so funny that the government wants us to be like financially responsible and they're ridiculously in debt. And they say, well, we're going to default on the debt ceiling or we're, we're going we're to default on our debt unless we raise the debt ceiling, which means they're just going to create more debt for us. Do you know, I'm, I'm still coming back to, deep, to Y-Defi. I'm still coming back to it. Do you know that in the past two years, America has printed 
40% of the total dollars it's ever printed in the history of the United States. 30% in 2020 and 10% this year. If you overfill a pool by 40%, is it going to flood? Yeah, it's going to flood. You're not going to see the effect of that all at once, but over the next 10, 20 years, it's absolutely going to play out. So why crypto? Why Web3? Why DeFi? How does it connect? Through Web3, we're creating alternate systems of currency. Of course, we know that currency is just something that is a, it's a store of value that's agreed upon by all parties involved. Just like I could trade, you know, a rock or I could trade a valuable Babe Ruth rookie card or I could trade, you know, a piece of paper that represents a piece of gold. All of these are based on our perception and our agreement as a community that these have value. And what really creates value is scarcity. So there really is no scarcity in the dollar because we just print it every time we need more. But there are scarcity or there is scarcity in things like, for instance, Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is the digital equivalent of gold. And you might have heard that before. Why is it the digital equivalent of gold? Well, it's because there's a finite amount of Bitcoin available in the world. And this is very important to know because scarcity in a finite number creates natural demand. It creates natural demand for an asset. So there are a total of 21 million Bitcoin total that will ever be created because the algorithm only allows for a certain number of Bitcoin to be created. There is a mysterious creator of Bitcoin who we still haven't identified. His or her name is Satoshi Nakamoto. We don't know if it was one person or if it was a group. Similar to William Shakespeare, we are not sure if William Shakespeare was even the person that he was purported to be. Could have been multiple people. Even Lao Tzu, who wrote the Tao Te Ching, we're not sure if it was really one person or many. Satoshi Nakamoto is also kind of, you know, an enigma. But this person, Satoshi, who created this concept of Bitcoin, which is a digital store of value, in 2008, released this white paper. He sent it to a thousand people and he created this network where digital money and value can be exchanged. And the way it's exchanged is through a network of computers, okay? And basically, the computers solve complex algorithms on something called a blockchain, okay? A blockchain is just another word for a network. Each piece of that network is called a block. Every time a block is mined, okay, similar to how gold is mined, a certain number of Bitcoin is released. Every time Bitcoin is released, the computers who are working on that block get a fraction of that Bitcoin and it's released into the network like a slow drip. There are only 21 million Bitcoin available in the world right now, total that will be ever mined, and 19 million of those are in circulation. Every four years, the number of Bitcoin that's released is, more, is turned down more and more slowly. So right now, every time a network of computers, and it takes many, many computers connected together in like a, like a computing farm to mine these Bitcoins, these very complex algorithms that takes a lot of computing power. Every time one of these blocks is mined, 6.3 Bitcoin are released into the network. Every four years, that number is halved. So in 2024, when the next halving comes along, every time a block is mined, only three or so Bitcoin will be released into the network. And so in that way, the supply is being constrained not only in time, where it's being stretched out, think of it in comparison to the dollar, where there's no limit to how much can be created at any time. So not only is it dripped out slowly, but there's also a cap. The way that the blockchain is set up, 
no more can be created. Now, because of these various factors and other things that create a really secure network where it can't be hacked, it can't be changed, this is what creates the possibility of digital value. There's something called a ledger, and the blockchain is essentially a ledger, which is the receipt of all the transactions of this value. And that ledger is basically public. You can look on it and see exactly which wallet addresses. And for instance, I have a wallet right here. This is called a ledger. Okay, this is a little USB flash drive. And this has an ID attached to it, a wallet ID attached to it. And if I were to move my Bitcoin from like an online exchange, which is similar to like an online stock market, to this ledger, it would be sent into a certain wallet that's attached to only this device. And you can look at that on the ledger and say, okay, X amount of Bitcoin was sent from this exchange to that wallet. And because that ledger cannot be changed, cannot be altered, it's basically trustless, meaning that you don't need a third party to ver verify and validate that that money has been sent. Now, what this means is that, is that there's no need for a bank to be the intermediary in these transactions. You don't need them to approve it. You don't need them to hold it. A lot of times, the reason why money takes so long to get to your account, I don't know if you've ever tried to either wait for your paycheck and the ACH takes five days. You try to send money to friends or family, the transfer takes forever. You try to move money and they, they charge you these random fees or they just hold on to it. They're, doing, they're holding your money because they're, they're accruing interest just by holding it. They're charging you because they can do that. You know, things like overdraft fees, all these things that the bank does, they make trillions just by moving money, making it weird, slowing it down, fucking it up, taking little pieces out. And that's the intermediary effect. And this is a trustless system where you don't need to depend on someone else to move your money around. Now, this is just the piece of why it's so important. But this, is, this helps you to understand that one, not only are cryptocurrencies potentially more stable than fiat currencies, especially when we talk about Bitcoin. There's a lot of cryptos out there, but we're just talking about Bitcoin for now. Because it's finite, it's more stable in a lot of ways. But although it's volatile, meaning on a day-to-day -day basis, you might see a big fluctuation. My opinion is that on a long-term basis, when you look at a long-term timescale, it's not nearly as risky as the dollar or as other fiat currencies because the value isn't going down because we're printing more of it. So it's less risky long-term. It's more secure. It's less susceptible to intermediaries taking little pieces of your money, holding your money. I mean, shit, I've been levied by the IRS before. They can just go into your bank account and just take money. They can like open your fridge like they're grabbing a beer and take money. That should be illegal. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. You know, that's the reason why the freaking revolutionaries threw off all the tea in Boston Harbor, Boston Tea Party. They said no taxation without representation. Do you feel represented? I don't. So these things are happening. And cryptocurrencies, which are under the umbrella of Web3, just part of this whole movement, cryptocurrencies, which are part of the techno technological innovation of blockchain, cryptocurrency is the tool that's going to allow us to extract ourselves from this system. And it doesn't mean that all banks are going to go away. And in fact, banks will try to keep up with this. But it's just the first nail in the coffin. So, well, let me just say this. This is not my first time hearing this, Daniel, because I've been tuning into your podcast. I've been watching YouTube videos, looking at visuals because I'm a visual person. So it's a lot to wrap your mind around. So, lady, if you're listening to this episode you're prop if, and you've never heard of any of this, it's probably a little overwhelming. So, Daniel, we're just going to go to one of the listener questions that they shared on Instagram. Ange says, what is the best education tool to learn about investing and trading in the crypto space? Because I know that there's just so much, right? There's just so much to learn. Well, I mean, I think 
the best thing you can do is just start YouTubing. Honestly, don't, don't overcomplicate it. You know, just, just start YouTubing the basics. Just start YouTubing what is cryptocurrency? What is blockchain? And what I, what I recommend is finding someone who has a style of teaching that's relatable to your type of understanding, your type of visual, your type of auditory, your type of, your type of in, in, intuition, because this information is very publicly available, but I think it's intimidating. And you want to find, hopefully this isn't an intimidating conversation, but you want to find the areas and the people that connect with you. And if you want to start with, with a certain key term, just start to learn about what Bitcoin is, because Bitcoin is kind of like the gateway drug. You know, it's like, it's, it's the marijuana of, of cryptocurrency. It's like, in fact, it's kind of like, it's almost like the brand name for cryptocurrency because people like Kleenex is a brand name for tissue. Band-Aid is a brand name for Band-Aid. Band-Aid is a brand name for a bandage. Most people interchange the idea of Bitcoin with crypto. And of course, they're, they're different, but just understanding about Bitcoin and understanding the history behind that will give you some more context. Thank you for that. Now, I have lots of questions because you're right. There is so much information out there. But I want to know, like, if when we think about this future and we think about the history, right, and we think about the future of where cryptocurrency is going and and the idea that the majority of us, if we're really being honest and we really think about this in the next 25 to 50 years, the majority of us will be using cryptocurrency and not relying on banks. Right. And so this sounds like. There's a lot of personal responsibility in terms of educating ourselves and creating our own wealth. When we think of the term personal sovereignty, mm-hmm. what does that mean? First of all, I wanted to start by saying I don't think that everyone is going to get on the sovereign train. I think that many of us want to be told what to do. Because it takes a lot of the stress off of thinking about what we should be doing with our life and our times. Just like, in a way, it's comforting to have someone run the more complicated details of our lives for us. Think about, you know, just the idea of going to a job versus running a business. Yes, there's more freedom in running a business, but it's so stressful to try to make your own way and to create your own direction. And there's so much unknown. Sometimes, even as a business owner, I think, I wish someone would just tell me what to do and I could just clock out at some point. It would be so nice. And of course, I would lose all the benefits of the other things I get with it. Ultimately, it's not worth the trade-off. But there's, there's a lot of truth to the fact that not everyone wants to be totally sovereign. And just speaking about money in general, how, how it connects to personal sovereignty. You know, I'll give you an example, even just looking at this hardware wallet. So this is a wallet that's completely decentralized. So what that means is that you can buy cryptocurrency on, on an exchange like Coinbase. So Coinbase is similar to like, if you ever heard of a, there's a, there's an app called Robinhood and Robinhood is a stock trading app where you can go on there and it's very simple. It's like, it's like stock trading for beginners and you can say Apple $10 and you press send and it buys you $10 worth of Apple stock. It's very easy. Well, Coinbase is the same thing, but for cryptos now. When you keep your crypto on Coinbase, Coinbase is centralized. It's a publicly traded company. And as long as, the, as long as your assets are on that exchange, you don't actually have control over them. 
So if Coinbase were to have an outage or if there were to be like some government intervention where they're they're cracking down on regulations on crypto, which is there are possibilities of that actually brewing right now. And anything happened to Coinbase, they could freeze your account and you wouldn't be able to get to that. Just like Chase at any time could freeze your account for whatever reason. You know, sometimes even if you're going through like a, a, a criminal investigation, even if you're innocent, they'll freeze your bank accounts. Ever seen Enemy of the State? <laughs> Very centralized. Like if they freeze my bank accounts, they freeze my credit cards because those are centralized. And you might not worry about that right now because you're going through your everyday life. You say, I don't have to. It'll be fine. It's never happened before. It won't happen. But it's better to be prepared and not need it than to need it and not have it. You know? And so, so those are centralized examples. And, and this is decentralized. Now, the good thing about centralization is that if you have a problem, you lose your password, you have a, a customer service issue, you, you, you need to access your bank from somewhere else. You need to, I mean, I remember when I was in, I was in Portugal, I lost my credit card and I called Chase and they were able to get me another one. It was great, you know, whatever. Centralized, that's the beauty of centralization. And there are a lot of benefits to centralization. A lot of people aren't ready to give that up because it makes their life so much easier. Just like Google is a centralized entity and they really make your life easier because all the information is feeding to one place. Now, decentralization takes it totally into your hands. So if I were to put $100,000 of Bitcoin on here and I lose this, that's it, buddy. That's it. It's gone. Or if I were to, God forbid, lose the password, and I know some people who have had wallets who've had millions, millions in Bitcoin who lost their password, or they and you know you only get a certain amount of password refreshes on these. So you get like 20 guesses, and if you get it wrong, that's it, it wipes it. And they're on number 18, you know, <laughs> because they because they got it 10 years ago when they bought 30 Bitcoin. They didn't know they, they didn't really take it seriously, and now they forgot their password. And, and, and that that would probably be so toxic to me. I would probably have to just I have to really, really question my life. But that's but the but the benefit of decentralization is that you have complete ownership. No one can hack onto this because it's not connected to the internet. No one can hack this. No one can take this. No one can identify that this is mine. No, it's completely secure. Okay. And I have to be completely responsible for it. If you just extrapolate that to your life, there are many things you don't want to be personally responsible for. You might not be res- want to be responsible for creating all the food that you have in your fridge. Do you want to make the almond milk? Do you want to make the cheese? Do you want to filter your water? No, you know? no, 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 no. No, you don't. And that's all centralized. And there's a beauty to centralization. We all talk about you know living off the grid, but how many of us want to make our own clothes? I'd rather have Levi's do it. You know, there's a reason. So. Personal sovereignty, I think there's a, there's a balance to play between how much responsibility do you want over your life. I personally want to have some centralization still in my life while controlling the most vital aspects of it. So for right. me, that means I will still have some money in the bank and I will still have some money on like a, a centralized exchange and I'll have some on here and I'll make the decision about where to hold it, where it goes. And because of this technology, because this technology is available, at least I have the option of making things decentralized if shit goes down. And that I think is much better than saying, I want everything decentralized. Personal sovereignty really isn't about doing everything on your own. It's about having the choice. It's about having the the option to do as much of your daily activities, your transactions, and the things that are important for your self-fulfillment personally. You know, so whether that and, and I think that that also comes down to personal sovereignty over how you take care of your body. So, you know, I'm big on t- into martial arts. I'm a lifelong martial artist. And for me, personal sovereignty means 
I can take care of my body. If something happens, I don't need to call the police. I mean, obviously call the police if you call the police if you have to call the police. But I'm not depending on someone else to come and save me. That's why my wife and I are doing multiple firearms classes and we got guns in the house. Because if someone comes over, we're not gonna be like, call the police and hide. I mean, the police are great if they can get here, but we all know that police response times are up higher than they've been. And guys, I live in close to Portland and it gets wild out here. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was a 30 minute wait time and I ain't got the time. So we're gonna be at the range practicing and she's a dead shot. Personal sovereignty, you know? And then with personal sovereignty co- goes into knowing your rights. So I know we're branching a bit off money here, but it's all, it's all inclusive. You know, if you get stopped by a police officer, do you know what laws to cite? Can you confidently communicate with authority without breaking down? If there's a mandate in your city, do you know the difference between a mandate and a law? Do you know what you're actually capable of doing in any given situation? And so that all includes, is included in personal sovereignty. It's knowing where your boundaries are, asserting those boundaries, and having control over how you conduct yourself financially, personally, spiritually, all that stuff. That's personal sovereignty. So powerful. Thank you so much for that, Daniel. I think this gives us a lot to think about as individuals and how we want to live our lives. I will say, based on what you shared, I was thinking about my risk tolerance. And I, I feel like for me, diversification is the name of the game. Like you were yeah, saying, yep. having, you know, just your just diversify your, your the way you're finding. If you have your whole back in this, it's very scary. Right, right. I lose my keys <laughs> all the time. You know, there we go. what it, babe, have you seen my flashlight? Oh, I threw that out. Oh. <laughs> You know, exactly. like whatever, you know? We, don't, we don't want that, right? No, so, that's, so that's, yeah. The, another question that I wanted to ask, we've touched on a lot today, but someone, April on Instagram says, what exactly is the metaverse? How do you get there? I know it's not a physical location, but what is it? How do you get there? How is Facebook tied into it? And is it here now? Okay. Well, we're already kind of in the metaverse. I mean, it, it's just that it comes in stages. So your social media avatar is the entryway to the metaverse because we all know that people play different identities online than they actually have in real life i mean they're straight up catfishing and then there's just people who indulge a little bit on their personality you know but the metaverse is basically it's another layer of reality on top of the existing world that we're playing in so if we just go back to web3 as an example chris dixon said web3 is read write own Many of the things that we are interacting with in a digital capa- uh, capacity now, we don't actually own. You know, for instance, imagine you know we don't we don't own the we don't own the documents that we interact with that we make online. We don't own the the, the things that we that we transact with online. But in the metaverse, we can take our identities from one online community to the next without having to change clothes. For instance, so I'll give you an example. Right now, you guys have accounts on Instagram. But if you were to, were to go from Instagram to Twitter, you don't take your followers with you. You don't take your account with you. You don't take all the credibility and the following you've built up. You have to kind of essentially start over again because they're separate platforms. In the metaverse, you take who you are throughout the entire web. So you get to create a more universal avatar for what's possible for you. And not only that, but as we go along collecting different pieces of digital accoutrement, whether it's NFTs, and we could talk about what those are at a different time, whether it's owning your cryptocurrency, whether it's you know interacting online, you get to basically create a new experience that is entirely digital. And that can, that can happen in a couple of different ways. One, 
the metaverse is the opportunity for you to create an online personality that travels with you throughout your entire experience, but it also is going to connect deeply with virtual reality. And virtual reality is something that's already happening. I have a Facebook Oculus, which is like their little virtual reality goggles thing. It's kind of scary. I think I'm going to give it away to my nephew, but it's really cheap. It's like 260 bucks and it's honestly incredible. You know, the graphics are incredible. And what's happening now is we're able to interact with people through this virtual experience in a way that feels almost real. And so people are living two lives. They're living their physical life and then they're putting on the goggles and they're living a separate life completely through, through this digital experience, which has no bounds, which you can connect with people at any time from any place on earth in this virtual world connected to this meta. And you know, I'd highly recommend that anyone who's listening to this to get a full picture of some of the things that are possible. You actually listen to the Dark Lord, Mark Zuckerberg's most recent talk on Meta. They renamed Facebook into Meta. They rebranded Facebook into Meta. And he gave a creepy, spooky, scary, disgusting talk on what they're doing in the metaverse and how they're going to shape and create it. And you should watch it at least so you know what they have in store for us. And after you watch that, watch a TV show called Black Mirror, which is a dystopian science fiction thriller series. And if you watch those two combined, you will have an anxiety attack like nobody's business. But at least you'll understand you know, what's possible. And I will say this, Facebook is aiming to create a centralized metaverse where they control your entire experience of this virtual world that we are going to live in. And by the way, this is not something that like might happen. It's already happening. Where do you think the money is going? The money is going into that direction. You know, Facebook is devoting themselves to becoming a metaverse company, a blockchain company. Square, for instance, Jack Dorsey stepped down from Twitter. He's, he's, the, he's the founder of Square. Square is now becoming Block. Block is a Bitcoin company now. So they're becoming a cryptocurrency company. So all the capital in the big tech is going towards blockchain, meta, crypto. So it's not if it's going to happen. It's an eventuality. So watch Zuckerberg's take on this and realize that they're trying to create a centralized version of this meta virtual experience. Many of the, and if you're, if you're older than 30 right now, you're seeing this and saying, well, I, you know, I'm not going to get involved in that. And maybe you'll live part of your life where you're not really that involved in it, but I guarantee you, your kids and your grandkids and their kids will have a, a, a firsthand experience of this from jump. School will be in this, work will be in this, and, and recreation will be in this. And it's not something that you're going to have necessarily a choice of whether or not to interact with because it's going to be, do you have a choice really to use a cell phone? You do, but it becomes so inconvenient that you, that you end up doing it. And so, so there, there's, there's going to be a choice that we have to make about how we want to create this new reality. And it's coming. So get ready. Oh, well, wow. thank you so much for that, right? <laughs> Goodness gracious. If you want to have an anxiety attack. <laughs> That was that was a lot. But, you know, I think about as you were explaining that, I think about our ancestors in the 1800s or the 1600s and how they were living life and what they would think about how we are living currently. Right. Mm -hmm. And hell, even if I think about my great grandmother who lived to be almost 90 and was born in early 1900, right? If I just think about her life, and so we're talking like a little over 100 years ago, if I think about her life and how things evolved over the course of her lifetime, 
and how things have continued to evolve since her oh, yeah. death, oh, yeah. it makes sense. I think how think how the direction that we're moving towards. I mean, when I was born, my great great grandmother was still alive. Her name was Agnes, which is what you're named when you're a great great grandmother. And she was born in 1899. So imagine, yeah, imagine someone from right. that time period looking at us now. And one question that comes to mind is, when is enough enough? Right. You know, that's a. Really and I don't good think we're going to be able to stop this train. But no. when is enough enough? Right. That's a good point. And that's a great segue, Daniel, because, you know, right now what we want to do is we want to shift up the energy of this conversation. Daniel, because we recognize, appreciate and celebrate the multifaceted woman on this podcast, right? We believe that it's okay to be bougie, classy and ratchet. And we believe that you can still be elegant and dance to strip club music. We want to invite you to the OU Blatchet segment. So do you take on the challenge? Oh, I got a, I got a, a pull in the house. I'm serious. I, pull in the house. <laughs> I love okay, it. He's ready. Wife. He yes. is ready. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. So Daniel, we have three questions for you. We're going to ask three questions. We're going to share three sentence completions, and then we're going to have you choose a number between one and three. We have three photos pulled up from your Instagram. Oh, and God. once you choose a photo, we want you to explain the photo, provide some context. Tell us something oh. about the photo. We wouldn't know. By looking All at right. the photo, that's so a now, good. This is a, um, this is a good. You're good. That's good. Oh, now that you've agreed, we're gonna we're just gonna jump on in. So the first question here, again, classy, bougie, ratchet. How would you describe NFT to NFTs to a second grader? I would describe it as digital artwork that pays you forever. Boom! Oh, that I was like great. that. I like that. All right, now. We're going to go a little ratchet. Okay. You said you had a pole in the house. So are you yes. going to twerk or two-step? Well, I'm not going to twerk, but I will two-step. All right. All right. We go. We will see you two-step right around that pole. The pole is upstairs. The pole is upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, Daniel, the next question, before we move on to sentence completions, the next question is, what's the sexiest item you own? Sexy to me or sexy to a woman? Your choice. Hmm. Let me ask. I love it. Yes, he's getting sure. his wife involved, y'all. His wife's probably she said like, money. Hey, oh. go ahead, Sarah. Shout out to Sarah, your All wife. Right. Shout out to your wife. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> All right. She, she didn't take that long to think about it either. I don't own it. The government owns that. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Not if I put it on here. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> put it on that wallet. All right. So now we're going to move into sentence completions. One question or topic I wish people asked me about more often is. Mental health. Well, Daniel, you know, I am a psychologist. So I, I'm going to turn right around and ask you, Daniel, what do you want to share with us about mental health? I would like to share that confidence is a moving target and you can generally be a confident person, but go through struggles with confidence. And what I've found is that you can be going through a downward spiral while you're still in an upward trajectory in life. So don't mistake a downward spiral for a downward life path, because that sometimes drives you down a bit more. And confidence is something that I have found I gain more when I have credibility with myself 
And the only way that I can have credibility with myself is if I do what I say I'm going to do. And if doing what I say I'm going to do doesn't always mean that I am doing what I want to do. So it's learning to detach my immediate feelings in the moment with my bigger purpose and staying integrous with my word because that keeps me in alignment. And when I am the same person on the inside that I am on the outside, that's when I feel my best and that keeps me mentally healthy. The times when I've been lowest mentally is when the person who I was acting or being on the outside without the person who I was being on the inside. And I felt out of alignment and broken. And so that for me has been a big key to mental health. That is beautiful. That was a word. I love right? it. Snap, snap, snap. Yes. And that takes us to our last sentence completion, which is a nice little full circle moment here. What I love most about myself is... What I love most about myself is my resilience. We appreciate the thoughtfulness too. Very intentional. And well, Daniel, we have some photos pulled up. So if you can choose a number between one and three, we'll go we'll go ahead and show you those photos. <laughs> three. Three. All right. Let's see what three is. Oh, this is a good one. Okay, cool. We're going to go ahead and share the screen. And for the folks that are not tuning into the video, feel free to describe the photo and then give us more context about <laughs> this photo. Okay. This is a good one. This is me and a friend of mine. His name is Tom. And this is Tom Bilyeu. And this was taken in 2018. I had a, a group of clients and students who I was lucky enough to take to Tom's house. Now, what's special about Tom is not what most people would think is unique about him. On the outside, what you will admire about him is that he sold a business for a billion dollars. So he was the CEO of Quest Nutrition, which is a big nutrition company, Quest Bars, which by the way, I like those bars, but if you eat even just two, you'll get constipated. So I'm like, man, even a billion dollar company, it's like, Tom, you're constipating me here. It's like, come on, man. I'll just, you know, whatever. But that's a separate conversation. Because I used to eat those a lot. And I'm like, this, this is like a billion dollars? Constipated, man. But what I love about Tom is that I know people who are so much less traditionally successful than him by average capitalistic standards who are fucking assholes. And Tom will still respond to my texts in a timely manner. He's still a, he still maintained his humanity. He is a really, really great person who is extremely giving. And that, to me, shines more than his technical accomplishments, which are great. And this, at this moment, we were talking about balancing work and family life. And he was actually explaining to me why him and his wife, Lisa, decided not to have kids. And they were, he was just explaining how they made a decision earlier in their careers where they wanted to go full bore on their career. And they knew that they wanted to live a life that didn't include kids and they were okay with that. And Lisa was explaining to me how she remembers vividly being a kid. And although she doesn't have them, she feels like she can still connect to them because she still connects to her own childhood memories. So that's amazing. So beautiful. I love his interviews, by the way. And I'm glad you pronounced his last name because I was always mispronouncing it. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Well, Daniel, I mean, we cannot thank you enough for this amazing conversation. I feel like we could sit and talk to you for hours and 
I toss a question and you just have such a wealth of information to share with us. So I know that our listeners today definitely will want to connect with you. So where can they find you? Well, it's very simple. Thank you for the question. You can go to newwaveentrepreneur.com. It's a very simple one-page website and it lists everywhere that you can connect with me. I have podcasts out of my own. You can check it out. I have a, a blog. I have different ways you can interact with me. All my socials on there. So it's very easy to find me or you can just look in the show notes, type my name into Google and I'm easy to find and track down. Awesome. Again, thank you so much, Daniel. We appreciate the work that you do. Thank you for just kind of helping us get our feet wet with these topics. And yeah, we will see you on your podcast. We'll go tune into your podcast. Thank you so much. Hey, lady. It's Dr. Dom here from the Cultivating Her Space podcast. Are you currently a resident of the state of California and contemplating starting your therapy journey? Well, if so, please reach out to me at drdominiquebroussard.com. That's D-R-D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E-B-R-O-U-S-S-A-R-D.com to schedule a free 15-minute consultation. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for joining us today. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, visit our website, cultivatingherspace.com, and be sure to click the Patreon tab to get access to video content, bonuses, and our weekly after show. And before we meet again, repeat after me. Greatness is my birthright, so I no longer ask for permission.